And welcome to Pints and Politics. Pints and Politics is a weekly discussion program of all things political. So since New Year's, as you've heard, we've run programs on politics, housing, the local arts community, and the climate crisis. We've been highly responsible, and we've tried to impress you with our gravitas. I mean, you can almost see the tweed jackets and smell the Balkan Sobrani pipe smoke. Uh, we've, we've taken ourselves very seriously, all these ponderous topics. But we're still in the grip of a long, bleak Peterborough winter. We have another month of crud and slush to endure, so we need a break. We wanted to have some fun. So tonight is about indulgence, enough of the serious stuff. Tonight we are going to talk about hockey. So uh, our never-before-heard hockey panel has pulled on their rusty skates and trudged into the studio to look at the state of the game, what hockey means to them, and how everyone's favorite team is doing. Joining me in the studio this evening are uh, writer, math teacher, and current hockey player, Tim Etherington, Writer, journalist, and loyal Habs fan, Don Fraser. Uh, comedian and mental health advocate, also an active hockey player, uh, Sean Greer. And hockey broadcaster, sports commentator from Extra 90.5 FM, Jordan Mercier. And also uh, from 90.5 FM, Pab Talk podcast host. That's Pab Talk as in the Leaf coach, Babcock. And I, I got that figured out. Uh, this is a podcast. Podcast on the Maple Leafs. Uh, their host is Meg Thurston. Welcome, Meg. So, welcome all, and thank you so much for showing up. Now, as advertised, we're, go- we're going to look at the state of the game and what hockey means to us and all that stuff. We're all going to look also look at the business of hockey, how the game is changing, the women's game, uh, maybe peer into the future of hockey. This is a 10-hour program. Uh, (laughs) However, to start off, uh, let's go back to the beginning. Would anyone be willing to share any of your early childhood memories of hockey? When did it first make an imprint on you? Uh, What Were there moments in your past as a kid that stand out for you and what it meant to you? This is Tim. (laughs) So I'm the only person in my family who can skate. Uh, there was uh, my my mum was into baseball, my father was into football, and uh, so I was the only I'm the only one who can skate. It was because I, I was I grew up in London, Ontario, till first grade. We had neighbors in this little suburban circle, and the father had been a junior A goalie, and so he and the three boys would play hockey in their basement. So my I really don't remember when I started playing hockey. I was playing hockey in the basement. It's all I ever wanted to do. I had a Bobby Orr lunchbox. I had Bobby Orr pajamas. <laughs> I was obsessed with it. And I started playing hockey at six in the Red Circle in London, and I could not skate to save my life. I just ran around and kept playing until I actually figured out how to do it. Wow. Donald. Uh, yeah, I, I, I grew up uh, – I was born in Montreal, but I, I, I grew up in southern Ontario, in Markham, just out of Toronto. And um, even as a, as a real little kid, I always, I always felt that, uh, you know, that Habs pride, that, that, that I was from Montreal, I was different, I was going to cheer for the Habs. And so from a very early age, I, 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 was, uh, I, I, was, I was lambasted by – it was, you know, it's the living embodiment of the hockey sweater. And, uh, <laughs> but I grew up playing, uh, playing hockey on uh, – Using warped um, rulers as, as tapes, we play uh, we play floor hockey. It got it was full contact. Um, the the kids that hung around with uh, with us and our family were all bigger. It was uh, it was it was white knuckle, bloody knuckle. It was it was hockey at its nineteen seventies uh, best, and uh, never looked back. And uh, it's it's one of those things where I was I was proud to be different and and, and <laughs> to wear the blue blanc et rouge uh, in an area where everyone was uh, wearing the blue and white. And uh, it was a huge imprint, imprint on me, and, and I'm still cheering for the Habs today. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know what? This is a great question, and it, when you asked me uh, in the email to share it, I had to actually kind of rack my brain. So, um, you know what? I am not from Montreal like you gentlemen. However, I am a Mercier, so there was no oui. ifs, ands, or buts about me playing hockey. And in the spirit of great French-Canadian goaltenders, that's where I started. So uh, I'll take you back to one moment in 1993 when I was playing my very first season, and it was a championship game, and uh, I let in a shot from the red line through my legs. 
Yes. And I have an image of my dad going, oh, my God. We came back. We won the game. But then I decided I didn't want to be goalie anymore because it's too much pressure. Bell, you know about that. Yes, yes. Um, and then later I also got to do this. It was actually a Pete's Jens game, how they have some of the younger kids go on the ice during the intermissions. Yes. Um, so that was one of my favorite memories, too. And we lost that game, and my best friend scored on me. But uh, so, so usually my, my memories are more so bloopers, but it's yeah. still a game that I absolutely loved from the beginning. Sean. Yeah, uh, I think I have to throw in some uh, different. Uh, oh, closer! Uh, Come on in. Some uh, different uh, views from all these Habs fans. Growing up, I was always around Leaf fans, and that was a big part of it. Growing up for me, uh, this is not... an ecumenical program. You, you're allowed <laughs> to share. Yes, <laughs> um, I always wore 17 because of Wendell Clark. That was right. a number I've always had. And uh, one of my fondest memories growing up was my dad worked for the OPP, and I came home from school one day, and uh, he said, get your skates and your stick and get in the car. We're uh, heading someplace. And no idea where, and found out later we were on our way to Maple Leaf Gardens where the OPP was playing the Maple Leaf Gardens staff, and the place was empty. And my dad goes, tie up your skates and get out there. And I was skating around Maple Leaf Gardens wow. by myself, and then my dad comes out, and I got to warm up my dad and take shots on him wow. at Maple Leaf Gardens, just the two of us on the ice. So, sorry, Habs fans. <laughs> no, 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 that counts. Uh, so mine's actually similar, uh, a goalie story, but uh, <laughs> mine was on my family farm uh, near Dunsford, and my brother, my older brother and my older cousins never wanted to play net, and so they padded up my snowsuit, <laughs> Strapped a snowmobile helmet on me and would tie me to the goalpost and take shots at me. So that was my first introduction to hockey. Donald. Uh, I'm wondering if there's – this has got to be a Canadian theme here where uh, uh, where younger siblings are, are placed into precarious situations. And the precarious situation is, in fact, in net. And uh, you're there more or less just to make sure that the puck doesn't go into the net but actually bounces back out again. And, uh, yeah, I spent, uh, I spent many, many hours taking – frozen orange balls and frozen tennis balls uh, off the head, the chest, the arms, the legs uh, from my brother. I, I seem to remember, uh, I, I said I, I was born in London, lived a few years in Toronto, was briefly a Leaf fan, so, you know, <laughs> okay, okay. and then moved to Montreal where I spent the rest of my childhood, which is where I identify with. But I remember playing in Leaside Arena when Mr. Mahovlich sharpened the skates, uh, Peter uh, and Frank's father. And so I would have been about eight years old or something like that, well, young enough that my dad was, would still tie my skates. And I remember we were suiting up for a game, and the coach said, hey, the goalie can't be here uh, next game. Does anyone want to jump in? And I was just about to put my hand up, and I, my dad looked at me and shook his head vigorously. <laughs> and at the time, I thought, oh, is he protecting me? I could never figure it out. And only later did I realize he didn't want to pay for that goalie equipment. <laughs> That's funny. Now, I've just finished reading Charles Foran, Charlie Foran's biography of Maurice Richard. Uh, now, both as a, a Charlie used to live in Peterborough. He was, in fact, a neighbor across the street. Very interesting book. As both a player and an icon for a political and cultural movement, Richard mattered deeply to his province and, of course, to French Canadians everywhere. But today, in 2019, as a sport and as a passion, does hockey still matter? And if so, to who? Donald. Uh, So, uh, a week and a half ago, uh, Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, Mitch Marner is skating along the boards. He sees a, sees a little girl hopping up and down. Uh, he makes some contact with her, uh, ends up, you know, doing a selfie from behind the glass. And, uh, the look on that kid's face, um, I, I will tell you, hockey matters. Uh, that kid, that kid is never going to forget that moment. Uh, the, the hug that that kid got from Carey Price uh, earlier this yes, week. Yes, saw that. You know, um, yeah. you know, hockey matters. I think, I think maybe, maybe the distance of time uh, affects things when we look and we say, okay, well, it's different, but but does it matter any less? Uh, I don't know. I think when you're when you're playing with the kids, when you're when you're with a a, a five year old, a six year old, a seven year old. Uh, that magic is is there and it's infectious and uh, hockey matters. 
Yeah. I, I would just say that hockey absolutely matters for a couple of reasons. I think we had talked about this a little bit earlier today, Bill, and mm-hmm. certainly not in the same context of Maurice Richard, which, by the way, I did a very extensive study on when, in my college years. Um, oh, because oh, I, yeah, I completely understood, and we could go back and trace the Richard riots to the beginning of the Quiet Revolution yeah, and all yeah, this yeah, kind of different kind of stuff. Absolutely. Like, you could draw a lot of parallels, right? Uh, but no, I think hockey still matters for a much more um, superficial reason. It's one of the main four North American professional sports that we major leagues and Canada still is the best at it. And I think we always strive to be the best at it. And we're disappointed when we're in the shadow of the United States. Now, the rest of the world, thankfully, for the good of the game, has sort of closed the gap. But on any given year, uh, you know, five of the top six players in the league can be Canadian. Uh, any given year, uh, you know, the top stars of the game are Canadian. Uh, any international tournament, best on best, Canada always does. And I always felt like... It'll always matter because it's something that we can hang our hat on that we're the best at. And there's other things that we're the best at, too, uh, that probably mean a little bit more in the grand scheme of life. But I think we'll always de facto point to hockey because it's something that, whether it's stereotypes or not, uh, that we're known for around the rest of the world. Right. Thanks. Um, and in terms of viewership, uh, looking at the Canadian audience as a whole, uh, I was looking back to the Vancouver Olympics. 80% of Canadians watch that gold medal game. Yeah. 80% of the population. That's huge. Hockey matters. Yes, yes exactly. The, uh, Go ahead, Tim. It's funny. I, I, I don't think that's a simple question. Because it no, it's, it's no. by what metric you're measuring it. You know, Jordan, you talked about international hockey, which actually I'm more passionate about than anything else. And it's where I locate my nationalism. I'm, I'm very suspicious of nationalism. I, I think it distorts... I think it distorts social issues and political issues. So I just place it someplace safe, which is inside hockey. And I have seen, I have literally seen every single world junior game that Canada's ever played. I was wow. listening to the first broadcast from North Dakota on the radio in my kitchen in Montreal when they, Mike Moffat stoned the checks. So I absolutely wrapped it up. Anyone who knows me knows that, uh, don't even approach me. Don't even knock on my door or anything. I'm, you know, I'm going to be watching the games. And, and don't tell them the score before because he He's taping the program. I like watching in delays so I can so I can fast forward through commercials and bad power plays and Don Cherry. Absolutely. Uh, however, um, it, it is a complicated thing because I look at it. You know, you, you compare the halcyon memories of your youth and what mm. it meant. And I mentioned mm. it a little bit earlier. And I think yeah. about you know I really cut my teeth and learned how to handle the puck and, and develop moves playing on outdoor rinks in Montreal. Um, and, and and that's such a a fulsome, you know, and, and, and sepia tone memory. And I also coach hockey as well. And I know the experience for these kids is different than it was for me. Uh, it is a very expensive sport to play. And it's becoming more and more the purview yes. of people from families who have the means. Um, I played on a rep team in Montreal. And a, a teammate of mine reached out to me through Facebook actually just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he came from a much lower economic position than anyone else on the team, and they had subsidized his his time. And, and it, it's funny, you know, because we had an interesting conversation. I don't think life's been that good to him. And he talked about his experience playing on that team, and he was saying how grateful he was my parents driving him to games. But he said one detail. He mentioned how afraid he was of breaking a stick because right. his family couldn't afford to buy another stick. Right. And you multiply that with the cost of equipment and rink time now, and you, you wonder how many people just for economic means can't play. Yeah, you know, Tim, you, you mentioned the point about equipment. Did anyone see the Charles Benamy film 2005, uh, the film called uh, The Rocket uh, in English, or the French version is simply called Maurice Duchard? There's fine period detail in this film. It's mostly about, of course, Richard's career from the mid-40s to 1960, and there's shots in the locker room of the, the Canadiens changing for games. And the equipment they wore was mostly felt and leather. Like, Kevlar hadn't been invented. There were no helmets, no dental guards, no visors. It was cheap but brutal. And as you say, now the equipment is so expensive. So I'm wondering, and in my childhood, anyway, we played hockey outdoors for almost four months of the year on natural ice. So there was lots of ice time. It wasn't the battle that it is in Peterborough. So are kids still registering to play hockey at the same rate? How's enrollment doing, well, in Peterborough, where ice time's hard to find? Does it have a future? 
I think it has a future. Uh, the latest stats that I could look up is no doubt hockey, minor hockey associations across the country are going down. Uh, yeah. Some of that is economic reasons, as Tim just kind of pointed out. Uh, some of that is also interest in other activities that maybe right. weren't around when, you know, even I'm only 29, but... Um, when I was a kid, there was no basketball leagues that you could go and play in. Uh, people weren't serious about yeah. mixed martial arts at a young age, like maybe you see now, um, and take from that what you will. So I think there's also a different interests, maybe. And then we could even talk about the changing makeup culturally of the society, uh, where you have a higher immigrant influence that's coming in that's maybe gravitating more towards soccer. So you don't see kids playing hockey in the in the summertime anymore. But but you mentioned an interesting thing, Jordan. Um, and this is wonderful, uh, but the CB, uh, the CB, I shouldn't say but, I say and, the CBC broadcasts hockey in Punjabi. Yeah. Now that's great. Mm-hmm. How did that happen and why Punjabi? Why not Cantonese, Mandarin, Hindi? Uh, I, I don't know the backstory of that. Tim. I, I, it, I'm sorry because I just, I'm, I'm scratching away the deep recess memory. I seem to recall it was the initiative of one person. Okay. I, I, I I don't have it in front of me. <laughs> you caught me by surprise, but that just tweaks my memory that there was one person who really pushed for it, right? And just sort of put it together, and they demonstrated there was an audience, and that's why it's happening. And there is an audience for uh, hockey in Punjabi. Yeah. It's great because why isn't it done also in other languages as well? I mean, with our population expanding so much, okay. Now, in until '67, there were only six teams, and I may be the only one in the room who remembers that. But anyway, uh, now there are 31 teams, 82 games. That's 2,542 games a season. Uh, we know when the season begins, early October. It goes to the first week of April. Actually, I looked it up, and uh, the season back in 1955 was 70 games. So it wasn't that much shorter than the current season. The difference is, of course, the playoffs. The playoffs would start back in the 50s, mid-April, and they'd be done by certainly the first week of May because there's only four teams in the playoffs. Back in the 50s, there were two or three Habs games a week, and they were real occasions. Uh, I can recall the Montreal Forum. It was uh, for the people sitting in the Reds, and Tim, you'd remember that. Uh, couples would go and they would dress up. It was almost like the opera. I mean, women would wear their furs and fine dresses. Men would always be at least suit and tie down in the red section. Now, of course, we all just wear our team jerseys. Not that I sit in the reds. Uh, but uh, now there's three or four Habs games a week or Leafs games a week. Is the NHL at risk of oversaturating its market? There's a. I, I think I think that the the, the NHL is, is is oversaturated both when it comes to the amount of games that are being played, but it's it's also oversaturated in in the game itself. Uh, when you have that many teams and that many players, your 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 quality of hockey is going to go down. Now it's a funny thing because skills have never been higher. Never in the history of hockey have people had the skill sets that they have. And I'm talking about fourth line guys who can do stuff with a puck right. that that Maurice Richard could never dream of. They're they're bigger, they're faster, they're stronger, but really it turns out to be a huge wash when you have this many players. You've got a couple players that that are are above and beyond, but even then, your Sidney Crosby's, they aren't scoring 182 points a la Gretzky. Uh, In fact, Crosby, arguably the best player in the world right now, is sitting fifth in in scoring, Uh, but they're winning the scoring crown by by 10 points. Uh, So even your superstars are not separate themselves from the pack. And uh, so what happens when you have this big oversaturated league is that parity creeps in. And, you know, the, the it's it, it ends up being um, five or six teams that are could all make the playoffs. Uh, and a lot of them aren't very good teams. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, I think the product is suffering. And I think the excitement of a day-to-day watching hockey suffers slightly as a result as well. Sean, go ahead. Um, we could be oversaturated too, but I think what I've enjoyed over the last few years is the choice in games that you can watch with the center ice package. And now you can see the teams out west and watch those. You can follow your team more closely and see every game. And they have their own broadcast. Like if you're watching on center ice package, you're going to get the New York Islanders feed and they're going to have their in game because I was watching them the other night. And just the amount of choice you have in the games. I appreciate that, and I could see it as oversaturation as well, but just that option of being able to choose your teams instead of 
Yeah. Meg. Um, in our household, uh, definitely not oversaturated. We went to Florida last week, missed three games, and it was uh, not good. Um, we, ta- <laughs> we taped them and watched them after, but I mean, missing a game is is not a good situation, can end in fights. Um, <laughs> I mean, not oversaturation at all. We would watch a game every night if we could. Of course, Leafs only. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. That's oh, that's allowed. Uh, we are open to all I things. I want to push back a little bit on this idea about the diminishment in skill. I, I, I think the yeah. players today are better. I mean, you said this, Donald, that, you know, they're more individually skilled, uh, but it's become such a global game. I mean, the, the, the players coming from all different points of the world now from obscure markets and, you know, Austin Matthews coming from Arizona, for example, you know, and all the different countries generating athletes, Lance Kopitar coming from Slovenia, you know. So I, I, I think, I think the amount of players in the league, uh, has been satisfied by the amount of new sort of feeder systems into it. I I think the issue with the quality of game is something that's happening across all sport right now. Sport has become so scientific. And I'll just give you two quick incident or examples of that. If you ever look at a tape of the 72 series, the infamous 72 series, it's a fascinating study in cultures because the Russians play a game that is somewhat similar to what we see now. You know, it's a hybrid game in the NHL, but it's much more systemized. They loop around, they circle back. Uh, It's all passing plays. The Canadian game is incredibly ragged. It's far more exciting um, because when the Russians control the puck, they dominate. And then Cornway gets the puck and can just outskate everybody. You know, or Phyllis Bidio can outmuscle everyone. And so that surprise of individuality, that unexpected thing. And you don't see that in hockey anymore. Everything's so systemized. Everyone plays the same way. It, that happens in every single sport. I mean, the same thing happens at the Olympics. The Olympics used to be kind of fun to watch because some totally obscure person would win the marathon or would win the pole vault. And now everybody knows within a range of a couple of hundreds of seconds and a couple of centimeters how everyone's going to do. And so it takes away some of that surprise. Why, how to change that, you can't, because obviously everyone wants to coach to their advantage. Uh, I think that's, I mean, you're right on the money. So through the course of my job, I've had the opportunity to interview many ex-NHLers. And to a man, wow. uh, Theo Fleury, actually Marty McSorley in the last couple of weeks, they all echo the same thing that Tim just alluded to. The game today, as it's presented, is overcoached. And even Marty McSorley said there should only be allowed one coach on the bench. And the problem is from an early age, right. they get rid of the creativity within the individual. So what right. we used to see with your Guy Lafleur jersey, um, you don't <laughs> see that spirit right. because – if you do, you end up riding the pine. And they always teach defense first now, more so than ever. And that is honestly, to a man, the most – I've I mean, even Dave Roach here in Peterborough, we've talked about it over and over again. And he was your grinder type, fourth-line fighter. And he says the same thing where it's like from an early age, it is – the creativity is coached so far out of you um, that, unfortunately, the high-flying days of the early 80s that you were alluding to, right? Gretzky, 200 points. Everybody's excited. I mean, you don't see that, one, the goaltenders are a lot better, but two, yes. just the systems that they run uh, don't allow for those sort of 7-6 affairs. Donald? Well, and, and and you take a look at how, not just coaching, but how teams are managed right now. Uh, and, and now there's there's a trend for, take a look in Toronto with uh, with Kyle uh, Dubas, who's, uh, you know, his, his, his raison d'etre is stats. And uh, so, and not just stats, but advanced stats. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, boils down to possession numbers and and, and so they're now building teams around stats. And if that sounds boring, it, it's kind of because it is. Uh, and <laughs> the, there, there's, a, there's a homogeneity uh, to hockey right now that, that Tim brings up. And uh, But you know what? Those, those skilled players, sometimes they, they, they surprise you. So Austin Matthews, it's funny I'm talking a lot about the Leafs here, but one of the things they've noticed lately about Matthews is that he's changed his approach on, on his shot. So he's he's you know he's he's changing the angle of his stick and he's which is really unique. It's it's fooling goalies. Uh, and so every once in a while you deviate, but the deviation is the the angle of a stick. And uh, so yeah, that's well. And uh, just to follow up on that point, because yeah. the introduction in the world of baseball of the idea of Moneyball and sabermetrics and these advanced yes, analytics. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, it's changed everything. Suddenly, we looked at Derek Jeter, who was this iconic player, and according to these new wave stats, was you know very average. And why? Because our eyes are lying to us because of all these algorithms. Um, in basketball now, they've gone towards that, where all of a sudden we're looking back on Kobe Bryant. 
Bryant and being like, well, actually, he was never better than the 15th best player in the NBA. Whereas we all watched him and thought, wow, there's the guy that you want on your team. And now we're seeing that in the National Hockey League. You mentioned Kyle Dubas and all those sort of analytics and Corsi and uh, all those breakdowns. We've changed our opinion on what makes a very valuable player. Now, if we did have a 10-hour program, Jordan, I would ask you, in all seriousness, please explain Corsi to me. (laughs) Don't start now, but don't start now. I just just going to underline one thing about about Austin Matthews. We're all talking about Leafs here. See see the influence you've had on us? (laughs) Um, Prejudice, right? Right again, Trent Radio. Again, I I don't remember all the details, but I know he spent time over the summer and particularly went down to Florida with a shooting coach, and there were a couple elite shooters from the NHL. Matthews is the only one I can recall off the top of my head, but several really, really top-notch scores. Intensive work with video and computer imaging to break down everything about their shot down to every little detail. And kudos to him, right? We We can say that, you know, this takes away something from the game, but if you're Austin Matthews, why wouldn't you do that, right? Why wouldn't you get it and sign your $11.5 million contract? You know, but it, it as, as I get older, I, I do kind of think, you know, there's some, something nostalgic about the athlete who cut down to a pack a day before training camp, you know? Yeah, that's good. You know, and Jordan, your, your earlier comment about uh, players feeling overcoached. Now, as, as a Habs fan, I, I am still in mourning over the departure of P.K. Subban. But in his early years, he had that, I mean, he made some devastating mistakes. I remember him being causing goals to be scored against Price because he blew it. But he would do these highly creative things that would bring the bell center to everyone to their feet. And that's what I'm missing. As yeah. you say... There, there's creativity, and you mentioned P.K. Subban, uh, you know, at times could be a wild horse out there, oh. uh, you know, 100%, and it was thrilling to watch. Exactly. Um, yeah. But the reality is, I mean, kind of what you said about Austin Matthews, of course he wants to adapt to today's game and be that kind of player. Uh, you know, coaches would rather win 2-1 to one than have a very exciting 5-4 loss, and I think that's what you see. Uh, P.K. Subban's one run. Uh, yeah. Patrick Kane is somebody that you watch yes. who has a lot of creativity, right? Yeah. Um, Alexander Ovechkin has always been a very, very fun player to watch. So um, you do see pockets of it. Um, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, to a man, the systems are, are much more rigid than what you're able to do. Yeah. Now, uh, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to pass around my phone. This is very helpful on radio and podcast. <laughs> uh, and I'm passing around. This is a YouTube film of Kendall Coyne Schofeld, uh, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Uh, national team skater who showed up at the NHL's All-Star Weekend. Have you seen this woman skate? It's just amazing. She stunned the crowd with her speed skating. She posted a very competitive time, finish, finishing seventh out of the top eight. That's the top eight skaters in the NHL and the All-Star Weekend. Her, her teammate, Brianna Decker, also impressed her male rivals in the, in the passing competition. So the woman's game is... Uh, gaining in popularity, uh, the rivalry between t- Team USA and Team Canada attracts large TV audiences. There are now six teams in the Canadian women's uh, hockey team. What's driving the popularity of women's hockey? Outstanding athletes, yeah. which is what we just saw. Right. And yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Uh, some great athletes had to kind of pave the way. So in Canada, we talk about Cassie Campbell, and we talk about uh, Haley Wickenheiser, south of the border, Cami Granado, of course, a very famous hockey player. Right. And I think we're just now starting to reap the rewards of the great, great series uh, that those international teams have. And you mentioned right. the CWHL. Uh, yep. The more that's starting to get exposure on Rogers and on TSN, right, right. I think the better the women's game probably will end up. Uh, so I remember uh, I was probably I was probably in Pee Wee or Bantam, and and my sister uh, wanted to play hockey. Uh, there was no hockey. There, there was ringette. And if I've ever seen a lamer sport, I don't yeah. I don't know <laughs> what it is. And so, really, uh, the reason why I think women's hockey hasn't caught up is twofold. One is they were never given the opportunity. So uh, you know, it wasn't until really this generation and the generation before where you had you know Cassie and, and Haley doing doing magic on the ice that uh, that it was even a thing. 
and the other one is, and I think maybe Tim could talk about this more, but because uh, we were talking about this before the show about the uh, the attention that the women's game has gotten from uh, from media, from corporations, and how uh, so we saw the NHL at the All Star Game bringing out the, these American women. Uh, they're they're the, the you know the pathbreakers, the ones who were who were doing things before. They they never got that showcase. And it was fascinating. It was indeed very encouraging to see. Uh, the players along the bench, you know, Austin Matthews, uh, Jonathan Taves, these people slapping their sticks against the boards as she finished because they realized, you know, she smoked us, you know. Uh, but instead of the cat calls, which certainly in the fifties would have been, they were supporting. That was great. Meg, um, I just kind of wanted to say, uh, I I actually don't feel that it's getting much attention or as much as it should. I mean, we've all seen this video. We saw them on the um, NHL All-Star, which was great. But since then, I actually haven't heard much about them. The most I hear about them um, and see them is during the Olympics. And then it kind of goes quiet again. I mean, I love hockey. Uh, If it was on more, would I watch it? I'm not entirely sure because I haven't really had the chance. Right. And I think that that's where it comes down to the participation among young women in hockey. is just Exploded, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and I think that's part because a lot of gender barriers are broken down, and women are going into fields traditionally male. And I, I think a lot of girls today say, "I want to do that too. <laughs> I want to yeah. go and smash into people and take slap shots and everything like that." And I know many, many, many young women who are just as passionate about hockey as I was as a child. But in terms of a spectator sport, we haven't we haven't crossed that yet uh, because we talked about this a bit before. And there was actually fantastic women's hockey on television two week I think two weekends ago, the Challenge Series, which is a new thing between the U.S. and Canadian uh, women's team. They played a three game series. Canada won, Woo-hoo! but it was tight. Like there were I think there yeah. were three one goal games. Maybe Canada got two goals up on the last game. Um, it was absolutely unbelievably good hockey, but it did not register with the public yes. consciousness. Yeah. And and that's the barrier and I don't have any easy answer how to do that. And and one reason might be this is this is a positive for me. I I like watching the women's hockey because there's not the egregious over the top hits there's not the people getting slammed in the boards like five seconds after they've passed the puck uh you know of course there's contact it's a contact sport but it's more focused on the game as opposed to uh, the gladiatorial competition of uh, scaring the stuffing out of the other team uh, so yeah i i think that could be regrettably you know, Don Cherry has made a successful career out of Rock'em Sock'em hockey, and a lot of people really like that aspect of the NHL game. Yeah, yeah. you got Jordan, one of them. Jordan. I figured I'm alone in here, but all right. No, I'm with you. I like it. <laughs> all right, all right. Because I've been, I was saying, I was driving home today, thinking a lot about this because I've been playing hockey since I was six years old, and I still play now, and I'm in my fifties. And you know. It's it's a loaded phrase, but I was thinking a lot about the, the notion of toxic masculinity, which is not yes. is not men being bad towards women. It's the expectations put on men, right, to be aggressive and be manly and show no emotions in that, and how much that is infused in the hockey culture. And, and I don't want to throw you guys a curveball, but I was thinking about something from a couple of years ago. So I, I played on a team uh, in Montreal, a rep team for four years, but before that, the organiz- I grew up in Westmount in Montreal, and there was a, there was a really good development program for Peewees. We had this exhibition team, this coach who was fantastic, produced some fantastic players, some who went on to work in, in pro hockey. But it came up many years later that there was a darker side to it and that he'd been molesting some of the teammates. Uh, one of them committed suicide. One of them was my best friend at the time, and he'd grown distant and, and suffered from alcoholism and very courageously... Uh, over a 15-year period, had to bring that to people's attention, had to fight the city of Westmount in the old boys situation. The name's Matthew Bissonnette, by the way. Mm. Uh, he serves a, a shout-out to him for his, his courage in bringing this to light. But a very difficult thing to do because, you know, hockey players aren't supposed to talk about yes. that. So two years ago, four of us who played on that team uh, got together in Toronto. Uh, we were all in our, we were 50 years old at that time. We were all hockey stars as kids. You know, we got to do that, right? One of them still works in pro hockey. Uh, the rest of us just have regular jobs. And it was that confused sort of thing. Where do we locate this? Hmm. You know, how do we how do we address the fact that we have really fond memories of how all this went down? We know the tragedy that befell our friend. Right. And we weren't aware of it at the time. And looking back, you can sort of see the signs of it. And particularly my friend, um, I said he's a, he's a coach in, in the AHL right now. And he said, and he's been very successful with private 
hockey coaching. And he said, I don't know what to do because I would not have a hockey career right now for this coach. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, it's difficult. I, I have such a romantic attachment to hockey, but I'm also aware that hockey does reify certain kinds of subtle violence. And I, I'm never quite sure how to address that. Well, Tim, you mentioned something that uh, I wanted to get to in terms of the style. Now, uh, many of us remember the, the clutch and grab style in the 80s and 90s that slowed the pace down. Personally, I, I prefer the fast skating passing game that today is moving, today's hockey. Apart from the occasional headshot, the game seems to be getting cleaner and more exciting to watch. Uh, fighting still there, of course, but the enforcers, uh, they're no longer the dominant thugs they used to be. Or am I missing something? I mean, is NHL hockey, in fact, getting better to watch? Or are they only in the eye of beholder? Um, I would say it's actually uh, a team by team um, basis because oh, really? the Leafs uh, themselves are high energy, speed, skill. Whereas you look at the Bruins, um, they're sticking to their historic rough and tough yep. hockey, and those kinds of matchups with the Leafs and Bruins kind of don't work well for us because they are playing that harder hitting hockey. So there are teams that are focusing on the skill, but there are still those Boston Bruins type right. teams out there that do play the hitting style hockey. I'm going to say that I prefer now it's not because I'm a Red Wing fan and they're really bad right now, but I did prefer, <laughs> I did prefer the late 90s version of the NHL. So okay, the dead puck really? era equipment was way too big. There was clutching and grabbing. I wasn't a huge fan of that. Yeah. And I'm not I although I do I mean as simple and barbaric as it is, I do enjoy watching a hockey fight. And I probably always will. It's ingrained in me. Um, and I, you know, I hope it doesn't leave the game, but if it does, um, I understand it's probably on the way out. But here's the thing that I would say is that I watch too many games, and this could go back to an earlier conversation we were having about maybe saturating the game and the size of the league and right. the amount of games played, whatever. Because I'm watching a game and, I mean, six, seven minutes go by and there's not a body check. And that's a part of the game oh, that okay. I really like. It doesn't have to be fighting, but if I'm watching, Columbus play against, you know, whatever, Vancouver, and they're just kind of going about their business, and it's just Wednesday night hockey, here we go. I'm always more towards watching the Bruins and the Canadians or watching the Flyers and the Penguins. That's what gets me excited. Not because of the senseless violence of swinging sticks and punching people, but because there's a little bit of extra pop in the building and buzz and there are body checks. But honestly, there's some games that I flip on that I'm like, the players don't seem any more into it than I am. And it's just yeah. like everybody's skating around all this kind of stuff. So I prefer when yeah. body checking was a bigger part of the game. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't mean to uh, have that as sort of a, a diatribe against physical contact. I mean, I, I used to play rugby, loved rugby. I used to box, believe it or not. Uh, wow. And, and, and Sugar so, Bill Templeman. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, just one season at U of T. It was very, it was very gentle. Uh, but the, the, the point is, if you like those sports, uh, then watch them. Why take something that has so much speed and skill and slow it down? I guess is where I get to the... But go ahead. I think the NHL has has a little bit of a problem right now when it comes to uh, when it comes to body contact because when there were enforcers in the game, if uh, if if someone if someone took you know an egregious shot like you know took your took your star into the into the boards hard, did a did a cheap shot or whatever, chances are they were going to get their bell rung later on. And uh, I'm not a fan of, of fighting in hockey, so there's this strange thing that happens. But so now as a result, the 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 retaliation is cheap shots, uh, yes, or or the fights that never happen after the whistle. So whenever there's a clean body check thrown in the NHL, and it's a good one, then there's there's a scrum afterwards, and there's no there's no fight that happens. There's just a, a build up of tension and a build up of tension and a build up of tension, and and that's that's when you start getting the cheap shots happen. So yeah, there, there's you're not allowed to hit in hockey without there being the repercussion, but the repercussion doesn't happen right away. It happens later on, and it's, and it's a stick. And, and and the repercussions for legal hits, you know, someone feels they have to fight. It Again, it's a very complicated thing. I loved body check checking. Mm -hmm. I was a winger. I lived to go into the corners. Mm -hmm. I, I camped out in front of the net. I don't know if you can see, I got a scar right here. I got, <laughs> I got that in Shattagay being cross-checked into the crossbar one game. My trick when I played, I, I loved killing penalties, was I would shoot the puck down the ice and pace the defenseman there, yeah. and then right at the 
dot, the, 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 I'd skate past the defenseman and let him cream me into the boards and fall on the puck and get a whistle. So I loved all that. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so it's a complicated thing, but I actually never really liked the fighting very much. Right. And in part because I felt it was very artificial. There wasn't something authentic. I guess that's the theater artist in me. You know, yes. hockey has its roots in, Working class Canada, you know, yes. uh, mill towns and miners, and, and that, that's not just romantic, that's true. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, a, a notion of vigilante justice that naturally sort of emerged in, in hockey that, you know, was sort of coherent and made sense. As it went on, it became the simulated WWE kind of thing. Yes. And, and that's where, like, you know, the, the designated enforcers and the sort of celebration of hockey became marketed with, with, uh, as a, as a, as a, as an arena for fighting. You know, we're going to disagree over Don Cherry, obviously. We don't need to get into that. We're not going to waste our time on it. <laughs> but that, that's one of the things that always really bothered me is, is that, so much that he would celebrate and people of that culture would celebrate the fight and not celebrate the game. Fights yes. would sometimes happen spontaneously and never bother me. It was the pre-planned, you know, it's like, it's like watching a bad musical. Every, everything stops and they have to do the song. Yes. <laughs> so everything stops and you got to do the fight. <laughs> Another thing, of course, I can remember in, in the 50s that a 200-pound player was probably one of the biggest in the league. Now, you have uh, 230-pounders, 240-pounders, the the norm. Yeah, I I mean, uh, Larry Robinson. Did Larry Robinson have to fight? Uh, Did did the Habs have to fight? Well, uh, yes, yes, Tim, it it happened. But for the most part, uh, it was was his presence that was enough. And so, yeah, during the the gooniest time in hockey, the the era of the the Broad Street Bullies, when they would just go out in the ice and do nothing more than maim people into – and that's that's how they won. They essentially just beat people up until they won. You had a team where your your biggest guy – almost never fought, but was still a physical presence. When sure. I was at my height of Pete's fandom growing up in Peterborough, <laughs> I was lucky enough to have Ty Domi and Mike Ricci and Jason Daw wow. all on that team. And wow. with the fighting in the game now, like I've been to a handful of Pete's games in the last few years, and I love to see that the fighting at the OHL level is disappearing because as somebody right. that still plays the game and has had concussion trouble, yes, this is like I looked at it now looking back. You're like, yay, Ty Domi's fighting somebody from Oshawa. This is going to be awesome. Now you're looking back and it's like that was two 15 year olds, 16 year olds punching each other in the head repeatedly. Yes, that wasn't it's a good, good scene. Jordan, I still like to see Ty Domi fight Oshawa. <laughs> I will drive with you to Oshawa. I mean, hey, hey, listen. The the violent underbelly of Peterborough culture. Well, and listen, in the OHL, I mean, they've done everything from if you had ten fights, you get suspended. Now I think if you have three fights, you end up getting suspended. So David Branch has showed leadership on that issue uh, when it comes to fighting. And I think you're seeing it. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, Fighting, even if it's not completely legislated out, I mean, like you watch a month of hockey and you might see one actual fight. Um, And I agree, by the way, Tim, I totally agree with you in the fact that I was never a fan of the, okay, we're just going to have the Derek Bougards just go out there just to fight just because they need to get a job. I was more a fan of the, okay, this guy just took a dirty hit at Steve Eiserman, so here comes Bob Probert, and Bob Probert would score 20 goals a year, so he wasn't like total goon, right? Same with John Ferguson, if you were a Canadiens fan. One thing we should introduce to this conversation, though, it isn't just any moral or ethical or artistic reason that fighting's being driven out of hockey. It's it's, it's fiduciary. It's like it, it, uh, because of of, uh, insurance claims with head injuries and that sort of thing, that's why it's being pushed out, is you can't insure the sport anymore. It's the same reason why pro football probably isn't going to last another generation. Um, it's being priced out. Uh, we were talking about fires all of San Jose Donald, but uh, I actually met Dave Forbes. So if you're old enough to know who Dave Forbes is, he was the one that Roy McMurtry, as Attorney General of Ontario, took to uh, charge with assault because of a fight at Maple Leaf Gardens. I met him about eight years afterwards. I forget what the situation was. And he handed me a pamphlet about Jesus. So there is redemption available. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Uh Last weekend on Hockey Night in Canada, uh, Jerome Ginla's number was retired. Is there a place for for fighting in hockey? And I, I think the answer is that we look at Jerome Ginla, uh, we look at Wendell Clark, uh, we look at players like that who uh, were among the league leaders in, in scoring goals. These guys were not goons. I think the, the the safety valve of an NHL fight is a huge thing. Uh, I think it prevents a lot of the stick work. Um, I, I think it prevents a lot of the cheap shots. 
when it's organic, I think I'm with with you that uh, that it it could be a, a really thrilling part of the game. We we got to that era where you know they they tap each other beforehand and it was like okay you're you're two dancing bears out there and uh, but something's got to be done because we're still facing you know headshots and head injuries in ways that uh, are scary as all heck and those aren't usually from the fights those those are those are a byproduct of, of probably not fighting. I love you. It's like you're reading my mind. We're so in sync right now. Let's do this again because yeah, yes, yes, so yes. I had the opportunity to interview. Uh, it was a fellow by the name of Kelly Chase. Now he was a fighter uh, with the St. Louis Blues uh, mm-hmm. through the course of the Brett Hall Adam Oates years, right. and uh, him and he gave way sort of to his role to Tony Twist, who came in a little bit later on. Um, so he spearheaded a documentary. Uh, it was called Ice Guardians, and it was on Netflix. I'm not sure if it still is. Is it still there? Okay. So that's a very intriguing look. You do see a lot of conversations about the negatives of fighting that puts it much more in a positive light and they interview old guys that they used to protect and they kind of put them over and t- pat them on the back uh the one thing that he said is exactly what you said i mean do the studies and i don't know how you can but he said if you really want to make hockey rid of concussions he said i've been in like 400 fights i probably had one concussion from fights it's all body checking and it's you know what i mean so are we looking at the right problem yes fighting looks more barbaric but what's contributing to concussions more two guys who are expecting it fighting or the guy who's getting plastered into the boards in the corner crosby Sidney Crosby, exactly right. And that's the perfect example. In that documentary, I believe they did Brian McGratton. And Brian McGratton said, I've had 400 fights through my minor and pro career, and I've had two documented concussions. Now, I mean documented being the key word. He said Sidney Crosby's missed 150, 200 games of his NHL career, and he's fought maybe two times. So, uh, yes, again, yes. it's just a different look at you know what exactly is dangerous, uh, fighting or body checking. And, and, and lest we forget, uh, the touchstone for hockey sentimentalists, of course, is the uh, Canada-Soviet series of 72. And uh, let us remember Game 7, it was, when uh, Bobby Clark was told by Ferguson... Stop Karlamov. Go out there, stop him. And so he did a two-handed slash that broke Karlamov's leg. <laughs> you know, a footnote to, you know, we the seem to gloss, of the century. Yeah, we gloss over that yes, quite a bit, yes, don't we? but that, in fact, <laughs> happened. All right. Now, we have just over five minutes to summarize uh, what we think the prospects are for three teams and the playoffs. So let's start with the Peets. The Peets are currently in sixth place in the OHL Eastern Conference. They're playing 500 hockey and stand a good chance of making playoffs. What are they doing right so far? And what has to happen for them to be strong, a stronger contender next year? Are we going around? Well, no, I'm just interested in who who has passion. All right. Uh, the Peterborough Peets, what they're doing uh, this year, I think they got off to a really good start. Hunter Jones was among the best goaltenders in the Ontario Hockey yes, League. Yes. He had a 930 save percentage. And look, he regressed to the mean a little bit. And yep. suddenly he wasn't able to cover the warts that they had. They went out okay. and they made some interesting. They picked up a very talented player yep. uh, who has you know a checkered past with behavior and Ryan Merkley, but he's been pretty good. Uh, the Peterborough Peets right now, they're going to get into the playoffs. They're probably out in five games, maybe six. Maybe they win okay. a couple of home games. Uh, but next year is the year that they are really targeting the possibility of taking another step. And when I had the opportunity to chat with uh, Dave Poe, the president of the Peterborough Peets, he said that's why the whole debate around the Memorial Center and the fact that the team's going to have to open the season on the road for two months right. is that much more of a bitter pill because that's the year for the last two years that they've been targeting. And anyone who follows junior hockey, right, you run in cycles. Yeah, and you yeah. kind of say, okay, we're probably not going to be a contender until two years down the road. Right. Uh, so Peterborough, at least next year, anyways, prospect-wise, is is looking up. But this year I wouldn't. Pencil them into the Memorial Cup. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have to ask in passing, where should the new hockey stadium be built in Peterborough? Yeah. There, there's silence in the studio. There's, oh, no, we do uh, need a 10-hour program. Yeah, across from the Holiday Inn, I think. Is, across from yeah, the Holiday across Inn? Yeah. Um, okay. The, 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 an entryway into downtown. Okay. Best location, I've been told by four different counselors live on the air that there's no way it'll, it'll be Morrow Park still. That's sort of it. Yeah. yeah. Not right. imagination. All right. Yeah, that, that's finan- now, that's now we reasons, do have to yeah. move on to the Leafs. Uh, the Leafs have won 40 games so far and sit in fourth place in the NHL. They'll make the playoffs. Uh, but how far will they go? If we, uh, will they, will Leaf fans still be watching them in June? If we use the keep, start, stop, uh, paradigm from the quality movement, uh, what do the Leafs have to keep doing? What do they have to stop doing? And what should they start doing right now to go deep? 
Well, what they need to do is stick to their game, their fast game, their skilled game, not worry about what the opponents are doing. They need to stick okay. to their game. We're probably 99% Jordan going to play Boston in the first round. I mean, looking very likely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we there's something that gets in our heads against Boston. Right. And they need to forget that and play their game, or else we're not making it out of the first round. Really? I, I could argue that there's something that gets into your net when you play against Boston. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and just one, I think the best subtext uh, about the Leafs is, is, is Kyle Dubas, because if they win the Cup this year, he's a genius. If they don't win the Cup, it's going to be a long summer. And I know that Leaf fans are kind of in denial of this, but you add up the salaries... Ten players Double. takes you to sixty-five million once they sign Marner, yes. and that's before you sign Kapanen and Gardner. I don't know; how, they can't keep the team together, and they don't have a first-round pick. Well, uh, uh, okay, same question. Uh, this time about the Habs. Uh, they're currently last wild card place in the Eastern Conference. If they squeak into the playoffs, barring miracles, they won't be going deep this year. What does keep stop start analysis uh, sound like for the Habs? Uh, the Habs are going to go as far as Carey Price is going to take the Habs. Um, I, this, this, is a, this has been a surprise year for the Habs. Um, I don't think it should be seen as much as a surprise year. Last year should actually be seen as a surprise year because everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Uh, this, is, this is more or less the Habs as, as they would have evolved over the span of the last two seasons. And again, this is a team for the last few years that was only going to go as far as Carey Price was going to take them. Take a look at at their forwards, and and as great as uh, as Domi has been, uh, as, you know they've got a couple wonderful wonderful people that came in this year and have really done well. But at the same time, compare that to to Tampa Bay, compare it to Toronto, compare it to to Boston, and, and you know what your your forwards not that deep. Your your D has always been a problem in in Montreal. Uh, it, it it's carrier bust. Yeah, I think I don't totally agree with that. I'm not get lost in that. I I think the comparison is Boston. I think they are built like the Bruins in that they they have a couple of and I'm not saying they're they're in cup containers this year at all but if you want to look at a template for a team they have a good group of forwards they don't have a superstar they don't have Austin Matthews they don't have John Tavares they don't have Marner they don't have Kucherov <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but Boston's never had that as well I mean they have a fantastic player in Patrice Bergeron right and David Krejci but they don't they're not like top 10 scores and they have an aging fantastic defenseman and a good goalie and but they're very very deep and i think it's where the habs are i think it's also evidence where the nhl is right now it's amazing how quickly within a couple of years teams can turn around the leafs did it a couple of years ago um you know a lot of high draft picks some good trades the habs shouldn't have been good this year but all of a sudden the team that looked in a trash heap has uh, made a couple good trades they're loaded with prospects i mean their prospects dominate the world junior tournament so things are looking up Three years from now, they could be back in the back in the tank. It could happen to any team now. I, I, I would have might have I might have almost pre- uh, preferred Montreal not doing as well. I'd rather yes. I would have rather yes. seen them fall to the bottom than be a bubble team. All right, last question: uh, the four teams in uh, the conference finals. We will we will go out on your predictions. All right, the four top teams. Four top teams will be Tampa Bay. Yes. It will be. It'll be someone from the Metropolitan. So I'm going to say the Islanders because they got the mojo behind them. And uh, ouch, ouch. Well, I know you had to run, but I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> and in it, uh, nope, the Islanders are going to beat them. I'm guessing. And uh, in the West, Calgary, Winnipeg. <laughs> NHL would love that for ratings, wouldn't they? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay, I'm going to go uh, Tampa Bay, Washington. Yeah. And right. then in the other conference, I'm going to go with a couple American teams. I'm going to go Nashville, San Jose. Wow. Oh, all right. And on those notes, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for showing up. And we'll be on in two weeks when our political panel returns.